Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. How wonderful it is to see you again, gracing the doorway of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today we've got a curious item indeed. If you'll look over here on the wall, we like to consider this wall kind of our art section, a little bit of a, a gallery, if you will, of various pieces of art uh, from time and antiquity to today in various forms and mediums but this in particular is a rather old painting uh, from 1887 it is by the russian artist victor vaznetsov now, if you look closely, this painting depicts something that may be familiar to you if you paid attention in Bible school. This picture is titled Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and it, of course, depicts a war-torn area with four horsemen, one riding a white horse, one riding a red horse, one riding a black horse, and the final riding a pale horse, and their riders, indeed, are something we will talk about here soon and a heavenly host uh, set above them. But it is this picture that really is the essence of today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So without further ado, let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look at the new M. Night Shyamalan film, Knock at the Cabin. So, Knock at the Cabin probably had to be one of the most anticipated films for me personally, but one of the most anticipated films for a lot of people, especially those that love horror. And M. Night Shyamalan is one of those directors that I personally, I have loved almost everything I've seen of his. Even the movies that uh, are a little more maligned, like The, like the Happening. Uh, a lot of people give that movie a lot of shit. And, and I mainly blame the acting. I think the story is a good story. I'm just not. Uh, you know, Mark Wahlberg, when he acts, uh, Zoe Deschanel, uh, when she acts, it's kind of hit or miss for me. And like Mark Wahlberg has this acting style where he, he ends everything on an uptick. <laughs> And, and that is probably one of his vocal crutches that just drives me nuts the most. And and it was on full display in that movie. So I can't say the movie or the story bothered me with the happening. Plot holes, yeah, maybe there are some. But, but I thought it was an interesting idea. I just think some of the acting. But anyway, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, people either love his movies or hate his movies. Is pretty much what it boils down to. And I'm one of those guys that, well, I haven't absolutely loved everything he's done i've loved most of what he's done and even the movies i didn't love i actually enjoy and still like so when i found out m night Shyamalan was doing knock at the cabin uh, based on the book cabin at the end of the world by paul tremblay uh, i was like I, I'm excited for this because originally he was just going to do this as a producer and let somebody else do it. And, and we'll kind of talk about how this uh, story came to be on the, the silver screen. But uh, he was originally going to be the producer, but he got so involved in the story and creating the story that he decided that, you know, he just couldn't let somebody else do this. He had to do this. And, and how it kind of 
all sorted out is that uh, a couple writers, Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman, uh, came up with a screenplay and the studio brought it to M. Night Shyamalan. He was going to produce this, but he just didn't like how the story progressed because uh, Desmond and Sherman, uh, from what I understand, did a pretty, you know, it was exactly like the book, how the book turns out. And M. Night Shyamalan, there were some things he didn't like about how the book went he told them how he would do things and how he would change certain things. And it was kind of, uh, okay, well, we'll thank you and we'll, we'll see you later. We'll come back if we, if we want to do this here. And then eventually they came back and said, you know, we like your changes and we do want to make this movie. And of course, M. Night Shyamalan was involved with rewrites that really kind of took this in a different direction. Uh, well, I think still staying true to the heart of the original source material and decided, you know what, he just couldn't let somebody else do this. He was more involved in this one than he thought he was going to be. So he decided decided he was going to direct uh, Knock at the Cabin. And uh, before we get into that, I, I do want to kind of talk about the fact that uh, the, the source material, I made it kind of a quasi New Year's resolution that, you know, I was going to read more. I just haven't taken the time to read as much as I used to over the past decade or so. Uh, so I decided, you know, what, 2023, I'm going to start reading more. And one of the things I decided I was going to read, first thing I decided I was going to read in 2023 was Cabin at the End of the World because I knew Knock at the Cabin was coming up in early February. So I, like I got a month. I ended up blowing through it in like two weeks. I really liked this book. Was it a perfect book? No, there there were some issues I had with it, but uh, I was really I was really excited to see what they were going to do, what they were going to take from the book and put on the the big screen, and the things they were going to change. So it was really kind of interesting. So throughout this discussion on cabin. Well, it's going to be Knock at the Cabin because we're mainly going to be talking about the movie. But since I just read the book as well, we're going to compare and contrast uh, how things went in the movie and how it compared to the book. So we'll be talking about the book as well. So I do want to warn you that there are going to be spoilers. I can't talk about this movie without talking about it. So uh, if you haven't watched Knock at the Cabin, then you might want to go watch that and then come back and listen to this. If you haven't read Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay, you probably don't want to listen to this because I am going to give away a lot of things uh, and compare and contrast between the movie and the source material. So if you haven't read that and you want to read that and you don't want anything spoiled there, I would suggest that you do that before coming back and listen. Now, granted, I want you to listen. I want as many people to listen to this podcast as possible, but I don't want you to ruin things for yourself just for the sake of jacking up my play numbers. Go check it out first, the book or the movie, whatever, then come back and listen to this and see if maybe we're on the same wavelength or maybe I'm totally off and you're seeing different things, but we're going to talk about this in depth. So from here on out, spoilers are ahead. So the basic premise of this movie is that this couple and their adopted daughter, Andrew and Eric and Wen, are at this secluded cabin on this lake. In the book, it's in New Hampshire, I believe. In the movie, it's in Pennsylvania because M. Night Shyamalan, everything's based around the Philadelphia area because that's that's you know that's where he's from. That's what he knows. That's why Stephen King, everything he does is is based in Maine. So uh, so I didn't mind that change, but but this family is at this secluded cabin on a lake, no self service, and it, it's isolated. 
So you already get that that sense of isolation in this movie. But all of a sudden, these four strangers show up. I don't think it's a too big of a spoiler if you're counting spoilers uh, that I that I commit uh, that sin of. But it's no spoiler because they they gave away a lot of the plot in the trailer. But these four individuals, these four strangers, show up and say that this family has to make a sacrifice to prevent the the apocalypse, the end of the world. And the rest of the movie really is all about that choice, about them deciding whether they believe these people, whether these people are believable, or maybe they're just crazy. And are they really going to entertain this? Or, or are they going to stand firm as a family and not give in to the insanity that they, they feel has, has taken over these people, this, this group delusion that they feel... Uh, is has taken over these four strangers that have come to their house and are asking them to make a sacrifice to, to save the world. And, and it really all is about the interactions uh, between the characters and between the couple and the daughter. And it really plays out very much like an old... I've heard somebody mention this. I can't remember what reviewer I, I listened to talk about this, like an old Twilight Zone episode. And it very much was kind of that. You you put seven strangers in a room and you put these extraordinary, maybe, maybe not supernatural circumstances, definitely extraordinary circumstances in play and then let them all play out. Let it all play out in this, this one location. And it very much, you know, how many old Twilight Zone episodes where we saw that, where it's just a, a few people, a few characters in a room, or even one character in a room, and you just watch the the madness play out. And this really much kind of was akin to, to some of those old Twilight Zone episodes, just because you are, one, isolated in this uh, secluded area where it's this cabin surrounded by lake and woods and, and nothing else, nobody for miles. You have the isolation of that on top of the claustrophobia of it all taking place in this small cabin and essentially this one room of this small cabin. Already, you're playing on tension and an anxiety and, and just putting you in that situation uh, where seclusion and claustrophobia are, are at play. Already, you're kind of you're kind of on edge as a as a viewer and and the characters as well, and especially when you have a, a character like Leonard, which we'll talk about the characters coming up, but played by Dave Bautista, who's such a giant mammoth of a man, taking up all this space in this small confined area. It just it adds to the the tension, like I said, and that claustrophobic feeling, that feeling like you're suffocating, and it just all added to a, an overall atmosphere that just made this, while it wasn't cram-packed with traditional horror, it, it did have other areas of horror in spades. And one of those is that isolation, that claustrophobia, that suffocating feeling. So we're going to talk about some of the characters right now. We've kind of went over the the basic premise of this movie, and I'm not going to talk about it beat by beat and, and scene by scene, because uh, for the most part, like the first half of this movie, or first act of this movie at the very least, is is pretty close to the 
Paul Tremblay book, Cabin at the End of the World, uh, and they were pretty faithful to it. Now, granted, there were things taken out and things were truncated a little bit because they really dove right into this. In the, the beginning of the book, you get a little more with Leonard and Wen. Uh, you get a little more with Andrew and Eric. Uh, you get a little more of the anticipation of these four strangers outside the door and the the three protagonists, if you will, Andrew, Eric, and Wynn inside and the back and forth there. You get a little more of that in the book, as you would. But M. Night Shyamalan really truncated all of that and really just distilled it down to the most important beats. It was enough to give you a sense of the characters, Wynn and Andrew and Eric and, and Leonard, but really trimmed the fat and made that opening bit of the story and, and that introduction into the story very short. And that way we dive right into the the anxiousness and the anxiety and the the tension uh, right away. But we're going to take a look at the family first, and then we'll get into the intruder characters. Now, the, the family is made up, of course, of... Andrew and Eric, they're a same-sex couple. Andrew being played by Ben Aldridge and Eric being played by Jonathan Groff. Two actors I'm not terribly familiar with, but I really enjoyed both of their performances. We'll get to that here in a minute. But uh, Kristen Cooey plays Wynn, uh, just a, a lovely little girl. She's got such charisma. And it's not like over-the-top kid actor charisma. It, it's just she is just a, a, a ray of sunshine on the screen. Even even in the scarier moments, she just does such a good job with this character. Uh, I'm really excited to see this young little actress develop and, and see where her career goes because uh, I was really impressed with what she brought to the table. And, and we'll kind of start off with her because she really is the main focus in the beginning of the book and uh, in the beginning of the movie because she's out catching grasshoppers when she meets Leonard and the character is really interesting because she has that childlike innocence. She knows better, but you know, she's very inquisitive and, and is looking at these grasshoppers, keeping a book full of them, which is right out of the, the original story, uh, keeping this book, describing all of them, naming all of them when Leonard shows up and she knows she's not supposed to talk to strangers, but she is intrigued by this man, this giant mammoth of a man who is talking very gently and, and very, uh, kind of like the gentle giant and he's wearing these jeans and this white dress shirt. She's curious about him and and the situation she finds herself in when he kind of insinuates himself into her grasshopper catching. But, uh, but I like the Wen character because she's smart. Uh, she is one of those characters that much like Stephen King writes children uh, smart for their age uh, a lot of the times. And, and she is a a very inquisitive child as she uh, in the book she goes on to talk about her relationships with her her classmates and, and you delve a little bit into that and and dealing with having a, a same-sex parent situation you get a lot of observations about that or that are beyond her years and, and very insightful it just makes her uh, charming and, and adorable and makes you really care about this character, especially when things happen later in the book as opposed to in the movie. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the differences as we go along uh, a little bit later, though. I don't want to jump into that just yet. But uh, Kristen Cooey, fantastic job as when She really 
played the, the little firecracker. She played the intelligence of this this smart, very bright child. Uh, she even played the sadness and the fear. Uh, you know, she has a, a hair lip. And she had operations, but she's got this little scar. And just in her talking about that, you know, you you feel all those things. This uh, this journey that this child has been on, being adopted in China, brought here, all she's had to go through with her operations, all she's gone through with her parents, and you get all of that. And you know, some kids are just kind of one note, and, and you don't really get a lot of emotion, but you you feel when she's telling you about these things, all the, you can feel the experience that is built in when through the performance of Kristen Cooey. And I was just, I was blown away by this young actress, uh, her and Dave Batista probably uh, stole the show in this. And that's saying a lot, given that there were a lot of really good performances in this film. Now the parents, Andrew and Eric, uh, like I said, I, I'm not really familiar with their work but I I enjoyed both performances quite well. Uh, ben Aldrich plays the Andrew character. He is kind of the, I, I don't want to say alpha male type character, but, you know, he, he grew up raised in the country, uh, knows how to shoot a gun, knows how to take care of himself, very rugged and and even even gruff to a to a degree uh he's got a bit of a temper and as all of the events are playing out and leonard and his group are explaining the situation that they're in and the decision that andrew and eric and Wynn have to make uh, he is very much the voice of disbelief he doesn't believe what they're saying it's all bullshit he believes that there is a rational explanation for everything that is happening all the examples that they give for why this is the end of times. Uh, there's there's a rational explanation for it. Eric, on the other hand, is probably played by Jonathan Groff, who again, not terribly familiar with his work, although I know the name. But he is he's more of the sensitive type. He grew up in a religious household, so he has a, a, a bit of faith. And while he doesn't believe them, there are things that happen that that make him wonder if. Maybe there isn't a little something to this. But there again, given the, the circumstances that he's been in, of course, he uh, suffers a head injury early on in this movie and in the book. So you're not even sure if the things he's experiencing that make him think that, okay, maybe there is a little credence to all this. You don't even know if he's seeing what he's seeing or if he's seeing what he's seeing because he has a head injury. So there's that that sort of doubt built in through all this. You know, the, the four people that show up, the four intruders that show up, Leonard and the gang, we'll talk about them coming up. They make a good case for what they're saying, but what they're saying is so fantastic and seems so irrational and, and crazy, so to speak, that how could you believe it in spite of all this evidence that's being shown to you? But in Andrew's situation where uh, he just he just can't believe this, there's a logical explanation. Then you have Eric who doesn't want to believe it, but there are things showing him that this may be real. And just the dynamic between these three entities, the, the four intruders, Eric and Andrew, and, and what they believe and what they don't believe and what they allow themselves to believe or not believe it is all very interesting in the back and forth. You know, I have seen some people complain that Andrew becomes a master negotiator, but in the, I don't think he's this in the 
book, but in the movie, he is a like a human rights attorney. But he's used to making arguments. So in this situation where him being an attorney, uh, a human rights attorney, to make the arguments that he is under duress and the stress of a, a hostage situation, not even a hostage situation, but an abduction, uh, intruder situation, uh, it's not that big of a stretch. Now, I don't think he's that. I don't think he's a, an attorney in the... In the book, I think he's a teacher of some sort in the book, uh, if if memory serves me right. But he does, very much brings a very analytical aspect to the story, whereas Eric brings more of a, a faith and religion aspect and point of view to the story. And, and they do come to, maybe not come to blows over it, but it certainly does cause some tension between those two as a couple. Now to the the intruders. Uh, now, if you've seen the trailers, you've seen that they're all wearing different colored shirts. Uh, Dave Batista as Leonard is wearing a white shirt. Rupert Grint as Redmond is wearing a red shirt. Nikki Amuka Bird is Sabrina, and she is wearing kind of a creamy colored shirt almost. I've heard some people say yellow. It's not yellow. It's more of a cream, uh, pale colored shirt and then abby quinn as adrian is wearing i've heard some people say blue shirt no that's black she's wearing black jeans it's it's a faded black but it is black a black shirt and and obviously this is an allusion to the four horsemen of the apocalypse now in the book it's never spelled out like that but you know and watching the trailer and watching the movie you get it. I mean, the people who get it, get it. The people who don't get it are going to get it later. Uh, they did kind of spell it out at the very end of the movie. Uh, Eric essentially calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I, I didn't think that was completely necessary. But the point he makes afterwards, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I think is a, a, a good point and an interesting look at it that I don't think you get in the book. But they are essentially the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And... I really liked how they kind of played on that in maybe subtle or not so subtle ways because you have these characters who represent one thing but are a different thing. In some regards, like especially the first two, uh, Leonard and Redmond, uh, they are kind of like their counterpart, their horseman counterpart. But in other ways, it's, there's kind of a juxtaposition between how the the portrayal of that horseman is to how they really are in real life and of course leonard is wearing white white was has always been considered conquest uh the horseman of conquest in the bible and of course leonard being the leader of this group breaking into their home definitely leans into conquest but the thing that's different about him is that he's like i said he's the gentle giant he looks very tall and intimidating and that's the same way it is in the book he's described a little different i think he's got like blonde hair in the books and i don't think he has all the tattoos or anything like that but he's a big tall hulking man and but he's very soft-spoken and he's good with when and very caring and gentle which is kind of a a total opposite of somebody that would be uh, all about conquest so i found that interesting and and i like how in the i don't know if it was in the book i can't remember right offhand because uh you know i've watched the movie and read the books in such close proximity that i'm afraid i conflate things sometimes but in the movie he is a school teacher i believe 
he is that in the books. If not, he works with kids in some capacity as a coach. He does that as well in the movie. But uh, but he's very good with Wen because he's good with kids. He's a very caring and compassionate person that is thrust into this situation where he feels like he's on a mission from Gad. That's my bad Blues Brothers impersonation right there. Uh, but he... He's on this mission and, and making these people make this decision to sacrifice one of themselves. And he doesn't relish this. He's not happy about this. None of them are happy about this. But but they have been compelled through visions and things that they've seen that they can't not believe this. They can't not believe what they've been called to do. And Dave Batista as Leonard is so good at portraying that anguish of... You know, he's doing something he has to do, but he doesn't want to do it. Now, of course, the Red Horse, the representation of war, uh, is the character Redman, played by Rupert Grint. And I, I really thought, you know, when I saw the trailers, I thought, okay, uh, this this character is going to be a little different than he was in the book. Because Rupert Grint is, he's always played such a, a good guy, you know, he's Ron Weasley. But the Redman character in the book is a real, uh, kind of a shit uh, he's just, you know, he's like, let's get this over with. He's pushing them to make a decision. And, and that really was how he played the character in the, in the movie, which I was glad to see. They stayed true to the character for the most part in the movie, but, uh, he is the red horseman, uh, representing war. And they kind of play into that because there's this side story where Andrew realizes that, Redmond was a man called O'Bannon who attacked him in Boston many years before. In, in the movie, Eric and, and Andrew are together at this point in the book. This was before Andrew and Eric got together, but Andrew was attacked by this man O'Bannon in a bar and got this big cut on the back of his neck, on the back of his head. We see that play out in here. It's a little more ambiguous in the book. They never do check. Andrew never ever Andrew talks about going and checking Redmond's wallet to see, but he never does and never finds out if Redmond was O'Bannon or not. In the movie, he does and finds out that Redmond was actually named O'Bannon and he was the guy that that attacked him all those years ago. So that that kind of leans into the war aspect of it. Uh, but there's a, a facet of this that is a little opposite of war, especially in the movie. Redmond is is hot-headed, and he's the guy that attacked Andrew, uh, at least in the, in the movie. But he's also the first to allow himself to be sacrificed. And he weeps openly. Uh, and sacrifice and, and that, that emotion of sorrow for what's going to happen to the world because uh, they're going to unleash the first plague once they... They kill him as is is kind of the opposite of war, so that that I found kind of an interesting juxtaposition there. Now these next two, uh, the characters really didn't fit the horsemen they're playing, at least overtly. Uh, not like Leonard and and Redmond do to a degree, but then they have the the opposite uh, about them as well. These two characters, uh, the black and pale horsemen uh, really are just kind of opposites of what they represent. Uh, first, you have the black horseman, which is Famine, Adrian. And she's the one that's wearing all black. And, and I found that interesting that she represents Famine, but she's a cook. And she has, you know, she's constantly making people food in this and in the book as well. Uh, so I found that an interesting, uh, you know, she is a, I can't remember if it's like this in the book. I don't think she is, has a kid in the book. In the movie, she has a kid, but she's just very 
nurturing good with when she's you know, talking to them she's she's trying to rationalize with these characters i think she i think she's a little different in the in the book i think she's a little more maybe kind of like a cross between adrian in the movie and redman in the book and movie she just wants to get this over with uh she's not as friendly uh but she's not mean or anything like that she doesn't relish what they have to do and just wants to get it over with and of course she's played by abby quinn i think abby quinn does a really good job playing the the movie version of adrian um I'm sure she would have done a fine job if the the character was a little closer to what it is in the book. But but I did. I, I think she she did a really good job because she was friendly. She was very nurturing. She was very caring and, and good with when and, and just trying to make people understand, make Eric and, and Andrew understand what they're going through and, and what has to be done. And then, of course, there is the uh, woman who is wearing the... We'll, just, we'll call it a pale shirt. Like I said, that kind of cream-colored shirt. Uh, of course, the pale horse is the representation of death. And she is uh, Sabrina in this movie. And and I found it interesting that she represents death, but her day job in the movie is a nurse, which is all about healing and life. So it, it was kind of a neat juxtaposition there uh, that, that we got with the Sabrina character. And of course, uh, that's played by Nikki Amuka Bird. And I, I thought she did a fantastic job with this character as well. I think they gave a little more of the Adrian character in the book. I think it gave a little more of her personality to Sabrina. I can't think that they kind of flip-flopped the personalities of uh, Adrian and Sabrina uh, from the book to the, the movie. But that's just that's it as far as the cast goes. I mean, M. Night Shyamalan has a little cameo in this. I like it because they turn the TV on to to see the one of the first plagues. I think it is the plague that uh, comes after Redmond's death. And they turn on the TV and there's this infomercial on. And you've got M. Night Shyamalan playing this character pimping air fryers on this infomercial, which uh, my wife and I both uh, kind of laughed about that, which it's always fun. It's kind of like seeing Stephen King show up in his uh, movies based on his works. It's always fun to see M. Night Shyamalan show up in one of his movies with a little bit of a cameo. So really running down the... Uh, different things in the movie that happened. I think we're going to kind of take more of a look at the differences between the book and the movie. And in that way, I am going to talk about the movie, but we'll compare and contrast it with how it went down in the book. And like I said, for the most part, up until Redmond's death, you really get a pretty fair representation of the book in this movie. I mean, it goes along pretty much uh, point by point. Like I said, it's a little truncated and they, they cut out a bit just for time, just so you can dive right into this because it, it really goes from zero to 80 in, in a matter of minutes. But until Redmond's death, things pretty much go the same. I think it's where Redmond's death happens that things really start to... M. Night Shyamalan takes a lot of liberties and changes things uh, slowly at first and minutely at first, but then that kind of gap between how the book went and the movie went uh, starts to widen. And Redman's death is the, the first one because Redman's death is it pretty much goes down the same 
it's a little more violent and a little more brutal. Uh, the the implements of destruction that uh, Sabrina and Adrian wield are more bludgeoning in the book and less choppy. And then the the final blow that Leonard uh, strikes on Redmond's chest is not a it's not a bladed weapon. It is a essentially a what looks like an anvil on the end of a stick uh, right to the chest so in the in the book it's a little more like i said bludgeony it's a little more brutal and violent when that death happens so it's a little cleaner in the movie which i understand m night Shyamalan did get an r rating in this but he got an r rating in it for violence and for language it wasn't for gore although they do have a little bit of, they have some blood they have a little bit of gore but the one thing i found that you didn't need that. I, I was wondering how gory they were going to be with this because, you know, just by some of the some of the things that happened in the book, I thought, oh, this is this is going to be a bloodbath in this movie. But Shyamalan really uh, he hinted at that and then cut away, and I, I think that was really really smart because one that makes the movie experience more accessible. You are going to get some blood in there. So, you know, like he said, the 14-year-old the boys are going to like that. But it's not so gory that the grandmothers aren't going to be able to, to watch it and say, okay, that wasn't so bad. But then after Redmond's death, yeah, things... Things go relatively similar. Uh, they spend the night there after Redmond's death, and they they find the the first plague is the you know, cities being swallowed by the ocean. And I, I did like in the book, and I really wish they would have done this, but I can't remember which character. It was either Adrian or Sabrina. I think it might have been Adrian talking about this this flood happens this big tsunami happens in oregon and that big rock formation that they used in goonies it was one of the uh you know when they're sh holding up the doubloon and they're matching up the holes with the rock formation it's that rock formation i think it may have been seen in the the end of goonies uh there's a whole big bit in the book about hey that's the rock from goonies and and it made me smile as as a a kid who grew up, uh, you know, born in the mid seventies, grew up through the eighties, and am such a huge fan of Goonie, the Goonies. Uh, I love the reference, and I was really hoping they were going to do that. They probably couldn't get the rights to that uh, from, from Spielberg or whoever, but uh, I was really hoping that they would make that reference in the movie, and it was it was a shame that they didn't, because it would have been a nice moment of levity. Not that there weren't other little points, little kind of uh, funny bits, but but this movie really wasn't about the comic relief at all. But they, they didn't talk about that, which uh, was a little disappointing to me, because I really loved that reference in the book but they spend the night that night and there's a whole big thing in the book where they all camp out in the living room uh, they've got eric and andrew tied up uh, wen's on a big mattress all to herself and everyone else is sleeping on the floor or the couch or what have you and there's a, a nice scene in the book where leonard wakes up and wen is awake and she she doesn't like to sleep in the dark she likes to have a nightlight but they don't have any lights on he talks to her and he promises her that uh, nothing will happen to her. He'll make sure that nothing happens to her. And I get why they did it in the book. And I get why they left it out in the movie. Because uh, Wen's story changes drastically from the book to the movie. So I get why they didn't do that. But you you get to the next day. And then that's really where the, the story kind of 
is on a rocket ship towards the end because things move pretty quick, even with the uh, flashback scenes, because there are a lot of flashback scenes in this, because there were a lot of flashback scenes in the book, a lot of flashbacks to Andrew and Eric's relationship which we got representations of a lot of that in the movie. We got the flashback to Andrew's parents. Now, I, I like that in the book, they gave Andrew's parents, especially Andrew's father, a little more redemption in the in the book than in the movie. In the movie, uh, Andrew's father is not happy that his son is in a same-sex relationship. In the book, it kind of goes on to explain that uh, Andrew's parents weren't on board with it and they wouldn't pay for his college but then they later came to accept him and and things were good between them later on in his life you only saw the the bad experience with his parents in the in the movie but you got to see things like that you got to see uh, when they adopted when uh, you got to see the flashback to when Andrew was attacked in the movie and and to me i felt it slowed the book down a little more than it slowed the movie down because they didn't really dwell you know in the book one of those flashback scenes takes up most of a chapter where in this it maybe takes up a couple minutes of screen time if that uh usually like a minute and then we're on back into the action so so i didn't mind the flashbacks as much you, you got a little sense of these characters and who they are and why you should care about them their relationship with each other their relationship with others but that's where things really start to deviate drastically because in the movie uh, Adrian is the next to be sacrificed, and in in the movie, they sacrifice her just like they do Redman. She puts on the mask. She gets you know she gets hacked up by these weapons that they've made, and they go to the TV and find out that there's this this new sickness out there. In the book, it's bird flu. In the other, in the movie, they've got some uh, X nine or or whatever. Uh, name for this this virus that's going around and killing people, mainly children. Then when causes a distraction and Andrew uh, eventually gets away and gets out to their truck and gets his pistol that he keeps in a, a safe box in the back of their SUV, he goes back in and kills Sabrina shoots her in the in the abdomen in the stomach or what have you and kills her that way causing the next chain of events and the the next plagues and then at the very end we get leonard uh sacrificing himself slitting his own throat to bring on the final plague now this deviates vastly from how it goes down in the book because in the in the book andrew does escape, goes out, gets his gun. Sabrina follows him, uh, but she gets scared off after he gets the gun and, and runs off and hides. Andrew goes back in and shoots Adrian, uh, shoots her in the throat. And Leonard begins to uh, scuffle with Andrew, fighting for the gun. And Leonard has his hands around Andrew's hands and of course Leonard's a big guy especially uh, when you're when it's played by a guy like Dave Batista he's got these big meat hook hands that are uh, enveloping Andrew's hands and and squeezing and they're fighting for this gun and Andrew ends up pulling the trigger and shooting when accidentally but he shoots his daughter and probably one of the I mean, there's some emotional bits at the end of the movie, but for the book, that is probably the biggest horror of it all. And I wondered if they were going to do that in the movie. I was like, that's, 
that's a dark place to go killing a, a small child like that. I, I just wasn't sure if they were going to do that. And, and part of me is glad they didn't do that because I don't know if I wanted to see that on the screen. As much as I'm a fan of horror and, and that is truly horrific, I, I, I don't need to see that on the screen. And I, I think it was smart of Shyamalan to not do that because he, you know, he's got kids. Uh, they're all, you know, older now, but he's, he's had kids and he knew he didn't want to see that. And I, I don't think test audiences would have wanted to see that. So I, I'm glad they didn't do that. It, and, and I am, I am old fashioned when it comes to books. I like adaptations that are, are, are true to the source material. I'm very protective of that with Stephen King. I get pissed off when Stephen King adaptations deviate greatly from the story but sometimes a deviation is a smart move and i think this was a smart move on m night Shyamalan's part to to not do this to not kill when but then of course uh after when is dead uh, leonard allows himself to be tied up by andrew and eric and you know he's still trying to convince them to do the right thing to stop the apocalypse uh, sabrina shows up and she's kind of uh, she's done with all of this and she ends up killing Leonard and telling Andrew and Eric that, you know, she knows where the keys to Redmond's truck is. They've parked it down the road a mile or a mile and a half. And she'll show them where the keys are hidden. Uh, they go looking for that. She finds where the keys are. They're under a rock uh, buried alongside the road. But Redmond also put a gun there. And she she tells Andrew and Eric she's going to kill herself. And she does. But before that, she tells them, you're only going to have a few minutes to do the right thing, to save humanity. And she kills herself. Andrew and Eric stand there. Eric is is kind of like, I, I saw something and uh, I think this might be real. Andrew essentially says if, if Eric if he shoots Eric, then he's going to turn the gun on himself. And as things go dark, they decide to stay together and put themselves first, no matter what comes, whether it's the end of the world or a world where they keep going uh, in spite of the death of their daughter. And that's how the book ends up. And it's an ambiguous end. You don't know if the end of the world came. You don't know if they ended up surviving. You don't know what happened. And Generally, I am all I mean, I'm fine with ambiguous endings. I'm fine when it leaves things to the imagination, but that was probably one of my biggest drawbacks of the book is that, you know, it just left me hanging. I, I've gone through all this emotional turmoil as a reader, and then to not have any of it paid off, just I, I felt cheated. And that was probably like one of my least favorite things about the book is the fact that I, I wanted some sort of closure to this. I wanted some sort of not answers, but I just wanted, you know, I wanted to know, was it all worth it? I want to find out if these characters' selfishness of putting themselves before humanity, uh, was that worth it? And like I said, I, I it's not that I'd have to have everything expelled out for me or have to have all my questions answered or everything wrapped up in a neat, tidy bow, but uh, this is one of those stories where I was expecting that and I wanted that. I wanted to know and I, I didn't find that out and I was left you know I was like oh, I I like the book uh, I, I love the book for the most part I, I only just marginally like the ending uh, I wish it would have been better I wish I, I wish it would have been told not told me what happened but I wish I could have got that finality to it now like I said this play is drastically different to 
how it ends in the in the movie because you have Leonard has killed himself. Sabrina was shot earlier, uh, bringing about the the next stage and the next plague where all the planes are falling out of the sky, which is visually that was just creepy to watch. Just given all the thing with terrorist attacks and planes and things like that, to to think of something like that really happening where these planes are just falling out of the skies, a, a frightening thing. I did like in the movie, they played it up a little bigger. It was a little more grand scale in the movie than it was in the book because in the book i think you just saw a tv report where you know maybe a dozen planes they had uh reports of falling out of the sky in the movie it just felt bigger it felt worldwide it felt like hundreds of planes are falling out of the sky which was which was pretty creepy and then leonard slits his throat and brings on the darkness and and these lightning bolts from the sky are are crashing down and causing fires everywhere. And you have that moment between Eric and Andrew. And and Eric talks about something that I didn't mention earlier, but I'm going to talk about it now. During Redmond's death, in both the book and the movie, Eric sees something. He sees a figure in light. And I liked it because you're not sure whether this is actually happening or this is right after he hit his head and he was quite severely concussed. And in the book and the movie... I think you you do have that doubt. I think the doubt plays a little more in the book than the movie, but you're not sure whether he's just seeing things because he's concussed or he's actually seeing something. It's very subtle in the movie because you see a, a light coming from off camera somewhere and you get a little bit of a reflection in the mirror that's behind Redmond and, and Leonard and Sabrina and Adrian. But Eric is noticing this and that reflection of light off the mirror is shining around something that you cannot see. So you see a, a bit of an outline in light of this, this invisible figure. And Eric believes that is something. He, he believes he saw something, whether it's God, whether it's Jesus, whether it's whatever. Uh, he, he saw that and it, it gives him faith that maybe they are telling the truth. Maybe this is the end of the world and they have the opportunity to save it. And they have a scene between them where they make the decision that Eric is going to sacrifice himself and it fades to black and you hear that gunshot and you're wondering, did they really do it until Andrew is going to, to find when and he's crying and just a heartbreaking and, a, and an emotional scene with these two characters that have been through so much together and having to say goodbye to, to one uh it's just it was such a heartbreak and one of two really uh tear-jerking scenes in this and that the final one is when when and andrew drive to this diner where they see all these people watching the fallout of, of everything that's just happened and you see all of these these plagues that have hit the earth the the tidal wave and the the flu the planes falling out of the sky and the darkness with these lightning bolts causing all these these wildfires and how they just all kind of everything just kind of stopped and and people started being saved and 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 stuff like that and you see the gravity of what was at stake that which you really didn't get that at the end of the day in the book you you felt like you know maybe things were at stake but you never got the gravity of it and you didn't get that that great scene where yes uh this was all real and that this was uh you know the the fate of humanity at stake and you had somebody that that gave a shit enough about humanity 
humanity to to make a sacrifice, a very Christ-like thing, uh, to make a sacrifice to save humanity. But it was one of the things I found really interesting is the idea of uh, that that final scene between Eric and Andrew, where Eric spells out that these four people, these four intruders, are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and he talks about how they represent humanity in the malice of red men the nurturing of adrian the healing of sabrina and the guidance of leonard which i think was a nice realization and an addition to the story by m night Shyamalan. but but they talked about why this family was picked and, and leonard even talks about he believes this family was picked because of the purity of their love and and i really liked that because it really delves into some of the themes that this is all about is why this family was picked uh, leonard says it was because of the the purity of their love and and according to the bible you know uh sacrifice uh involves uh giving the best and the purest you know the sacrificial lamb and jesus were were sacrificed because they were pure and and i like how with andrew and eric uh, you knew when wasn't going to be sacrificed. So it was really down between Andrew and Eric, and they really re- represent the two polar viewpoints of the world in general. And Andrew doesn't believe; he's not religious. He sees the worst in humanity due to the hatred and persecution that he's experienced over his lifetime, part and parcel because of his sexuality. And and so he has a a down look on humanity because humanity hasn't treated him very well. But Eric, on the other hand, is a believer. He has faith. He is religious, grew up in a religious home. He sees the love and the beauty in humanity in spite of all the hatred and the bigotry that he has experienced. So you really get two kind of polar opposites. Somebody that uh, looks at things analytically and somebody that looks at things on faith and that was just kind of a a, a neat play off each other and and the way the world is these days eric saw the figure in the light which also brought up something that that really interests me because he saw the figure in the light and i almost have to wonder if if their family was chosen, if you if God is the one calling the shots and he's the one that is giving Leonard and Redmond and Adrian and Sabrina the, the visions uh, about the apocalypse and how it can be stopped, if God is in charge and God led them to this family, then, you know, I, I almost wonder if because Eric saw this figure in light that nobody else saw, if maybe God chose this family because... He knew Eric would make the the right choice and Eric would sacrifice himself. This whole movie plays into a theme that M. Night Shyamalan has played into uh, a lot, especially in like signs, is that there are no coincidences. Things happen for a reason. People are chosen and put in certain situations for a reason, which I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it because one, it you know, the, the answers aren't all there, but there's enough to make you think. As much of this movie that was spelled out and, and very linear and very much note for note with the book they also added enough to make you wonder uh, why things are happening why things happen the way they are the trailer gave away pretty much the entirety of the plot of the movie but it didn't give away the things that should make you think about why this happened and the reasons for this happening and i think that's the real uh triumph of this movie is that it, it does 
answer a lot of questions that the book left ambiguous, but it also leaves you guessing or leaves you wondering all these other questions that, that need to be answered as well. Because we did get that answer of what happened in the end, it also begs so many other questions that, that you have to figure out for yourself. And it leaned into a lot of the, uh, the themes of this movie, the themes of, of choices and, and making the right choice in life and, and in the bigger picture. The, uh, you know, it, it leaned into different horror themes, uh, you know, apocalypse, and intruder, horror, the inability to protect your child, the horror of who, who's going to die, who is going to die to make this sacrifice. Uh, there was a lot of horror themes at play. Also a theme that I, I really enjoyed, and it was one of the things I really liked about the movie, There's Something Wrong with the Children. It, it kind of played into that idea and that notion that just because you're crazy or just because you come across as crazy doesn't mean you're wrong. Uh, was an interesting theme. There was the theme of faith versus lack of faith, the no coincidences thing. Um, it also made me think of that John Coffey line in The Green Mile. He killed them with their love. And while this wasn't the same, Eric saved humanity with his love. His, his love is what heals. Love is what, what fixes things. Love is what makes things right. Love is is one of the best of things. And, and it was his love that saved humanity. Humanity, when when everything else told him he shouldn't, uh, when his partner was telling them that humanity wasn't worth saving, it was his love for humanity and, and the people in it that that made him make the right choice. And it, you know, it really plays into uh, love triumphs over all. Eric's faith and his love gave him the strength to make the sacrifice. Uh, that saved Andrew and Wen and humanity. And that's what I liked about that final scene where Andrew and Wen are in the truck. They're ready to drive off from the diner. They turn on the radio and it's their family song, Boogie Shoes, that we saw a scene earlier when they're they're driving to the cabin. It just happens to be on the radio at the time. And they do this kind of back and forth, turning it on. The other turns it off. Uh, the other turns it back on. And I think that is a way of saying uh, maybe that's a message from Eric that you know he made this sacrifice and he's getting his reward he's he's all right and he's watching out for them uh maybe not maybe maybe it is just coincidence but I think as this movie and M. Night Shyamalan movies in the past uh, there are no coincidences so I think there is a reason why we hear that song that family song of theirs at the end now this this situation this this sacrifice this choice I think makes it's a little easier when Wen is still in play. If Wen's still alive, of course you want your daughter to to live and grow up and and be able to have a life. In the book where she's already gone, I guess it's easier to not make that sacrifice. But uh, but I like the fact that Wen is still in play in the movie and it. it you know, it makes making that sacrifice a lot easier. Maybe it would have been more complicated if they had killed off when and still had him make this choice in spite of, of what happened. But, uh, but I like the way it all played out in the end. So ultimately, like I said, I really loved this movie. I thought I thought it was a good representation of the book, even though it deviated. I think it still stayed true to the heart of the book. And if you don't like the ending compared to the book ending, I was listening to an interview with M. Night Shyamalan, and he talked about how he went to Paul Tremblay and asked him about the changing the end of his story. And Paul Tremblay said the way that they ended it in the movie is actually how he was going to end the book, but then he kind of backtracked 
fact and decided to give it the more ambiguous ending. So uh, it's it's kind of like the the ending of the mist that Frank Darabont went a little further than what Stephen King went with and and gave you a, a horrific ending to that, which wasn't in the original novella of The Mist, but it really played into things Stephen King set up earlier in the story. And it's, it's I think, a, a, a way to end that story that probably King, if he had it to do all over again, might do it that way. This is kind of along the same line. Uh, Tremblay didn't end it this way but he thought about it and wanted to and and maybe if he had it to do all over again maybe maybe he would do it the way M. Night Shyamalan did but I like that we have the, the book is its own thing the movie is its own thing uh, I will be labeled a hypocrite because the boogeyman's going to come out and it is not going to be the Stephen King short story. And I'm, I'm just having a feeling I'm going to rip it apart because of that. But don't let it go unstated that I am well aware of my, my, my hypocrisy knows no bounds. But I like the story. I like the characters. I thought everyone did a really good job. All the actors were, were really good. Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge were fantastic. Especially some of those scenes where Ben Aldridge was uh, was acting. And, he, and he's playing off the fear. And he's playing off the anger. And and just the, the emotion in his face and the, the wavering of his voice. I thought he did a fantastic job with what he did. Dave Bautista is a, it's a tour de force. He is like Hollywood's darling right now. And I love the fact that he's really trying to get away from the action movies. It's not that I don't think he'll ever do action movies again, but I think he wants to show that he's got some acting chops. And when you see some of his, his latest work, uh, especially this movie, the guy can act uh, for, for a wrestler turned actor. And I, I, you know, I've enjoyed some wrestler turned actor movies. Uh, you know, I watched No Holds Barred in the eighties, but but as far as wrestlers turned actors, I, I gotta say, uh, he is probably been one of the best, if not the best wrestler turned actor, because the guy does have some range. Uh, he he can do the action stuff. We've seen he can do some emotional stuff, uh, especially that final scene with him where he cuts his throat where he's talking about being a teacher. It just it, it was heart wrenching. So I really loved him. Him. And of course, uh, Kristen Cuey, uh playing Wen was such a fantastic little actress to watch. I'm really excited to see her her career develop as she she hopefully sticks with acting. But you know, the acting was great. The story I loved it. The shots were so fantastic. The cinematography in this was just beautiful and stunning to watch. Some of the camera movements. There's a scene where uh, Wen is running and the camera follows her just almost like a one shot where the camera is moving out around corners with her and it just adds such tension. There's a really cool shot with Leonard when he is, I believe it's when he is uh, hitting uh, Redmond with this axe-like thing. And they did a real cool movement with the camera following the blade and not the actor. It was really interesting. Uh, they did some really cool close-ups that 
it was unnerving and it was right at the beginning and it really kind of set the the mood and the tone and the tension with these really super close up shots and you really you know see every line on the character's face and and it, it really kind of invades their personal space and you really find yourself a little unnerved by it and it really like i said sets the mood for this whole movie which was just nothing but tension and anxious moments and anxiety uh, especially through the first half of the movie. And then after that, it's just a rocket ship of horrific things going on. And the emotion of the performances was was really fantastic. Like I said, Dave Bautista, Groff and Aldridge, uh, Kristen Cooey, uh, even the other act, Nikki Amuka Bird and, and Abby Quinn, Rupert Grint, just fantastic jobs with all of the, the emotion of this type of story and the subject matter of this story. They all just... Knocked it out of the park. Now, I, I know people are going to be, you know, it's M. Night Shyamalan. Everybody expects a twist from him. There was no twist in this movie, which I was fine with. Uh, he doesn't throw a twist in every movie. He doesn't have to throw a twist in every movie. But some people, it's like he throws a twist in a movie and everybody hates it. Uh, and then when he doesn't throw a twist in a movie, everyone's like, where's the twist at? It, it seems like Shyamalan can't win. But I have seen a lot of complaints that the movie was too straightforward. And yeah, the, the trailer did give away the bulk of the movie. And that's kind of a, a problem I've had with modern trailer uh, making is that they give everything away. But that's, I think, the beauty of this movie is that, yeah, while the the basic premise of the story is given away and the events of the story, you do get a lot more to sink your teeth into. There's, there's a lot of emotion. Uh, there's a lot of, like I said, tension and some of those anxious moments, that edger steep feeling, the suffocation of, of being in this confined space, especially with a, uh, a giant as big as Dave Bautista. Uh, it offers a lot more than just the basic premise of the story. Now, I wish they would have, because they gave a lot of the things away as to this is really happening, uh, I wish they could have played a little better and a little more with the, is this or is this not real? Is this or isn't this really happening? Uh, they could have made that a little more of a mystery, but I think just given the subject matter, I mean, reading the book after seeing the trailer, I had a really good idea that this is all actually happening. And now in the book, because of the ambiguous ending, uh, you don't get that uh, gratification of knowing that this was all actually happening. But I think they could have played into the, are they, aren't they crazy? Is this, isn't this happening? a little more it really felt like this is all for real this is all happening and i guess maybe that was a subversion of expectation on m night Shyamalan's part because everyone's expecting a twist and you know that you're expecting oh at the end of it this is all just going to be a big gag <laughs> and it's not it is for real the the twist being that there is no twist may be effective when you look at it like that but ultimately i thought this was a really good movie that i enjoyed did it have uh some some weak points in the plot yeah maybe did did it have some some bits of exposition dialogue that uh, I wish they would have said things a little different? Yeah, maybe. But ultimately, it was a good movie that uh, that played into a type of horror that you don't have to have gore and blood. I mean, you do get some blood and you do get a little gore and you get some of that kind of that gore where it's it's all in the sound design because the sound design I thought was really good in this as well. Uh, you don't need to see somebody's head being bashed in or hatcheted it apart. Uh, you get a little glimpse of it. You know it happened and it leaves your mind to, to kind of build the rest of the, the picture. You don't have to have blood and gore to be a horror movie. And I think this played into a lot of 
uh, horror that that I I find uh, fascinating to watch if it's done right. And I think M Night Shyamalan did this right. It built a lot of tension and anxiety, and that what would I do in this situation sort of horror. So. I encourage it. If you, you haven't watched it, go check out uh, Knock at the Cabin. If you haven't read the book, Cabin at the End of the World uh, by Paul Tremblay, I encourage you to check both out because they're both really worth it. Two two different things. Uh, like I said, they deviated from the the last part of the book, the last you know half to two-thirds of the book in the movie. But I think it's all done uh, in the movie. I think it's done in the spirit of what happens in the book. So I really I don't mind the deviations, and I actually like the ending of the movie uh, a little bit better than I did the ending of the book. the The end of the book felt like it went out with a a whimper. Uh, the end of the movie felt like it went out with a maybe not a bang or an exclamation point, but it's like shit. This this all really happened. You, you at least got that little bit of closure to it that you didn't get in the book. So check it out. Knock at the cabin. Cabin at the End of the World, uh, the movie and the book, I think are, are both well worth your time. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in, listening to my thoughts on Knock at the Cabin, as well as the book and some of the differences and some of the similarities. Uh, I really enjoyed both of them, and I hope that uh, you enjoy them too. So check out everything that's going on with Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on our Facebook page. We're always posting trailers. We're always posting articles that I find all over the internet about the horror, fantasy, and science fiction that we all love. And I like to add my two cents in as well. And I always like to hear from you, uh, whether you like the stories, whether you like my thoughts, whether you comment and let me know what you think about some of these things. Uh, I always appreciate the feedback. And no matter where you listen to this podcast, I encourage you to please uh, subscribe to it, follow it, download the episodes, share the episodes, and share the podcast with anyone you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. Helps get the word out and, and we can get our numbers built up. Since we moved to this new podcast platform late last year, trying to, to rebuild the audience again. And of course, uh, no matter what you do, please leave a review. Five stars would be awesome. But whatever review you leave, we do appreciate that more than you'll ever know. So until until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. <laughs>